Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory. The traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Whether we know it or not, the politics of all radicals today and in the future, how we understand society, our vision, strategy, tactics, how we organize ourselves, are shaped by the politics we inherit from traditions on the left. Today, as more people are recognizing what capitalism is doing to us and where it's taking us, there's growing interest in working for a better world, for an alternative to capitalism, for something called socialism. There's no question this is a positive development. There were two dominant currents of socialism in the 20th century. Social democracy, represented in Canada by the CCF and the NDP, and Stalinism, whose main representative was the Communist Party of Canada. Unfortunately, from the perspective of advancing struggles for emancipation and for human freedom, which really is the fundamental socialist goal, both social democracy and Stalinism are profoundly limited. The more people understand that socialists should re reject both social democracy and Stalinism, the stronger the next left will be. This is the first of two episodes on Stalinism and the future of socialism. You'll hear an interview with Simon Pirani about the USSR and an interview with Kevin Lin about China. The next episode will look at Stalinist politics outside the so-called socialist countries. Simon, welcome to Victor's Children. Can you briefly tell listeners what qualifies you to discuss this subject? Yeah, thank you uh, for having me uh, on the podcast, Dave. Um, what qualifies me is that, first of all, like, like many uh, socialists that your listeners will come across who are of my generation, I'm in my 60s, um, I've spent decades thinking about this because when we were younger, the Soviet Union existed. Uh, it claimed to be... Uh, socialist. Uh, those great big banners of uh, Lenin and red flags were all over the place in our lives. Uh, and wars such as the one in Vietnam was seen as a war between communism and uh, the United States. So I've spent a long time thinking about this. In 1990, I had an opportunity to travel to the Soviet Union, as it was then, to Moscow. And I've been traveling there uh, ever since. Uh, I learned the language, I studied, made research about uh, the early 1920s uh, and wrote a book about that um, and got to know many friends and comrades working in Russia in the labor movement and in Ukraine. Um, so and it, it, you, you use the word qualified if we're talking about academic qualifications, so I have them. And uh, I also spent six really for me, very happy years teaching Russian history. Uh, my, my main job is researching energy in uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but I spent six really great years teaching undergraduates about uh, Russian history at Canterbury, Canterbury Christchurch University. And I, I've attended lots of meetings uh, with people such as those who are listening to this podcast, where we talk about these things, obviously, in the labor movement, in left groups here uh, in London as well. 
Thanks. So to start off with, what's the, from your perspective, what's wrong with the usual way that so-called communism is generally portrayed in Western countries today when people learn about the history? I think there's an incessant wall of propaganda and this type of propaganda developed during the Cold War. So in the period after the Second World War, when the Soviet Union and the United States were the kind of two big so-called superpowers, and this propaganda portrays communism as, first of all, something that's foreign in all senses. Um, it's hostile to the way we live. Um, and secondly, uh, communism is, character, is characterized as brutal dictatorship and the repression of individual freedoms. Um, the historical tragedy that we're going to talk about uh, in the podcast and the, 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 the rise of Stalinism in the 1920s in the Soviet Union has enabled the other side, if you like, to point to the Soviet Union under Stalin and say, that's socialism. And I think any thinking person who then reads up on that uh, and studies a little of that history would conclude that, yeah, right, uh, it was a real nightmare like I'm being told, and must never be repeated. And I think the first thing I, I, I would want to acknowledge is that such a thinking person is very much on the right track. Stalinism was uh, a nightmare, and it must never be repeated. And uh, it's very interesting to talk to uh, Russians of, of, of my generation who uh, don't remember Stalinism as such, but they remember the Soviet times. Uh, their parents, of course, went through uh, the uh, Second World War, uh, their grandparents through the 1930s, and they have a very, very different appreciation of this uh, than uh, many uh, Westerners uh, of my generation. Now, I think as socialists and communists, if we're going to make our ideas mean something in the 21st century, we have to start off with that uh, recognition. We're not trying to sell a new uh, brand of what existed uh, in the Soviet Union. What we're doing is uh, thinking about our wonderful ideas of uh, human liberation that were described as communist uh, in the 19th century, um, but the, the, the meaning of which was actually bent and distorted by the whole Soviet experience. But if you think back to the 19th century, these ideas were about breaking the uh, connection between wealth and power in society, organizing a society that consigns economic exploitation and imperial looting to the past destroying the alienated forms of labor, destroying patriarchy and oppressive relations in families and overcoming the ruptured relations between humans and their natural surroundings. And all that was what it meant to be communist. Uh, and I think we've got, if we can restore that type of meaning uh, to the word communist in a 21st century way, uh, then we're going places. So I'm going to just, um, before we get on to talk about the late 1920s, talk a little bit about uh, the history before that for, for listeners. Uh, you know, in the early 20th century, the Russian Empire covered a vast territory in which capitalist industrial development was very limited. Most people lived in rural areas in peasant farm households. In 1917, a social revolution broke the power of the ruling class of aristocratic landlords and capitalists in part of that territory. Workers and peasants took power into their own hands through new highly democratic councils, the word in Russian for council is Soviet, uh, and also factory committees, workers' militias, and other organizations. This was a world historic achievement, and it was made possible because first, 
There was an extremely high level of democratic self-organization by workers and peasants themselves. And two, the, there was a really important leadership role played by the Revolutionary Socialist Workers' Party known as the Bolsheviks, which later changed its name to the Communist Party. In 1918, civil war broke out as ultra-right-wing counter-revolutionary forces, the so-called whites, backed by Britain, the US, Canada, and other countries, set out to overthrow working-class rule, the Reds. This had an absolutely devastating impact on society, with people in some cities coming close to starvation. The Reds won the Civil War, but found themselves governing a territory that was both devastated and isolated, facing hostile capitalist powers. Now, in 1917, the Bolsheviks' gamble had been that, although it was impossible to build socialism in one country, above all in one where economic development was as limited as it was in Russia, a socialist revolution in Russia could spur revolutions in Western Europe, where capitalism and the working class were much more developed. Successful revolutions there would then link up with the worker state in Russia and assist a transition towards socialism. But what existed at the end of the Civil War was not the democratic rule of the working class that had existed in 1917 to 1918. Historian David Mandel, in a book on the working class and the Russian Revolution, puts it this way. The power that the workers had seized in October 1917 fell completely from their hands in the course of the ensuing Civil War. The state retained certain important links with the working class, but it stood above it and beyond its control. However, I would add, in 1921, this state was not yet the basis for the rule of a new exploiting class either. In the years after the Civil War, the Communist Party's central officialdom tightened its control over the party, choking off party democracy. It also established top-down control over state officials. The dominant group in the ruling layer of society came to stake their survival not on revolution elsewhere, but on industrializing the country. And it justified this course with a new ideology of building socialism in one country. Opposition within the party to this course was crushed. Now, Simon, the USSR changed a great deal at the end of the 1920s uh, with what's sometimes called the Great Break. But to go back before that, what was society like just before the Great Break? Who ruled in the sense of being the dominant group in society in the mid-1920s? So uh, the research that I mentioned, uh, the history book I wrote, uh, covered the period immediately after the Civil War, which you've mentioned. And uh, looking at that uh, time in Moscow, I came to the conclusion that uh, right after the Civil War, when the economy had been laid waste in, in exactly the way uh, you described, um, we, we couldn't point uh, at that time and say, well, there's an elite uh, which is formed in the way that, you know, would make any kind of sociological uh, sense. But you, you could see the elements that would uh, go in to make that uh, elite. And you could see uh, really a, a terrifying process of the reimposition of forms of hierarchy, of types of alienation uh, that breed under capitalism, um, reasserting themselves uh, outside of anybody's control in, in many cases as events uh, rushed along. Uh, that elite had no sense of expanding that uh, workers' democracy uh, uh, of which you spoke. Um, and uh, basically, as I saw it, made a deal after, the, so there was the 1921 uh, turning point, uh, the Kronstadt Rebellion. Obviously, we, we've got the hundredth uh, anniversary of that this year, uh, and no doubt people will be thinking about that. And after that, 
in, in my view, uh, that elite held on, that rebellion uh, was crushed. Workers' uh, movements of that time uh, were also uh, put down quite firmly. And a, a simple way of putting it would be that the elite said to the working class, look, we'll make a deal. You guys keep out of politics. Forget all that stuff about Soviets and so on that uh, we had in 1917. We'll do that. We will rule the state. And in exchange, we'll make your living standards go up uh, generally. And you will work and you will, uh, we will together increase the productivity of labor. And I call that a, a kind of social contract. And uh, I think that that, uh, to me, explained this kind of redivision, uh, the uh, expropriation of political power uh, by the elite, uh, but uh, a deal with the working class where living standards uh, could rise. And uh, it's difficult to think of any time in history where uh, workers' living standards in, in any industrial country uh, could have been lower than they were in the cities of, of Russia at the end of the Civil War. Uh, people suffered uh, most terribly. Um, the other, and that, that process really went on through uh, the 1920s. And there was quite a clear uh, line. Um, political dissidents, particularly political dissidents outside uh, the Communist Party, don't do it. But in, in art and music and uh, different cultural forms, there was actually a really um, a, a very free atmosphere. There's absolutely wonderful uh, works of art at that time. Uh, many of the uh, struggles of 1917 in relation to uh, the position of women in society uh, continued to go forward. So this was a, a country which had, where the, the church and the state had been uh, as close as could be before 1917, uh, where that was broken, uh, where abortion was made legal long, long before uh, most of Western Europe. Uh, so th there were all these very exciting uh, things going on, but there were limits, uh, and that's in the towns. Now, the other thing, of course, is that towns continued to be a tiny minority. Uh, towns and townspeople continued to be a tiny minority in Russia during the 1920s. Uh, that vast other country, uh, the Russian countryside, which uh, included you know 80-something percent of the population, um, four out of every five uh, Russian people lived nowhere near a town and uh, had a little idea uh, of what, what went on in towns. Um, and the Communist Party set about trying to change things uh, in the countryside. Um, there was a desperate need for machinery. There was a desperate need for anything which could improve agricultural productivity. And there were endless discussions and arguments politically about how to get the best out of the peasantry. Um, and I think even, I mean, thinking back at the sort of documents I read when I was doing my research, even then at the beginning of the 1920s, I mean, the peasants are regarded with a great deal of suspicion. And there's a kind of assumption that they're, they're not ours and that we've got to try to trade with them. We've got to try to do these deals with them, but they're never really going to be on board with the Soviet project. And of course, uh, during the the great when the, when it comes to the great break in 1927-28, uh, um, the, the party decides to make this sharp turn towards industrialization and, and collectivization, and uh, that involves uh, a conflict uh, with the peasantry. 
And I, I mean, I completely agree with, with what you said, that the, the, the elite's aim was industrialization. They thought, there's Germany, there's uh, the United Kingdom, which was still then the, the, uh, the, the most powerful uh, country and empire in the world. Um, there's France. We've got to compete in order to survive. We've got to industrialize. Now, of course, actually, after the war, they had this great slogan associated with uh, uh, Khrushchev in the 1960s. You know, we, we've got to catch up and overtake. Um, but that, that is very much at the center of Soviet policy from the 1920s. Okay, so then let's talk about the great break. What happened at the end of the 1920s and what drove Stalin and other key leaders to move in that direction? So there's a, there's a, a history, and uh, if people want to go more deeply into this, they can look at these uh, discussions within the Bolshevik party about um, how to deal with the peasantry, um, whether to allow them to... Because, the, look, the peasants, after hundreds of years uh, of... Uh, so there was serfdom. Serfdom was abolished in Russia in 1861, uh, but that was a real uh, half job. Um, so the landowners remained uh, very powerful. You had these uh, absolutely archaic uh, relations in the uh, countryside. Uh, and in 1917, one of the great achievements of 1917 was the peasants took the land. They took the land, they dispossessed uh, the landowners. Um, so uh, the Bolshevik uh, party stood in the communist tradition of, of moving towards collective agriculture. But in practice, this meant communists who, again, were, were kind of regarded in many cases as coming from a foreign country because they came from the towns, coming into the villages and saying, OK, guys, you've got to collectivize. And this isn't how the peasants uh, saw things. As far as they were concerned, the land belonged to those uh, who were working on it. Uh, there was no need for them or, or necessarily to all work together. Um, the question of how the produce would be traded and so on uh, was all very much uh, up in the air. What happened in 1926-27, uh, there, there was a crisis uh, in uh, grain markets. There was a shortage, or at least the possibility of shortage. And this frightened, uh, I think, the, the, the political leadership and the, the doubts uh, that had been expressed about pressing ahead too rapidly uh, with collectivization and doing so without uh, the, uh, basically without the tractors without the necessary technology being available to uh, peasants to increase uh, productivity, uh, those doubts are then swept aside and uh, the regime goes into kind of command mode and decides to force uh, peasants into uh, collective farms. And, and Stalin actually sort of goes out to uh, Siberia and, and has a look around and comes back and says, right, you know, we've got, we have to uh, take this um, we, we, we've just got to push this through. Uh, the opposition voices within the party, uh, whether urging moderation or, or urging a stress on industrialization before uh, collectivization are, are, are ignored and, and broken and, uh, 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 and shut up uh, with internal party processes. And um, the, 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 as I said, the, the machine kind of goes into uh, command mode. And um, this involves the, um, I, I, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. So I was going to say the creation of enemies. Um, and I think that's a, a reasonable way to say it. So uh, peasants are denounced as kulaks. 
Kulak is the Russian for fist, but it meant rich peasant. But actually, historians have gone back and and looked at the uh, relations in these villages. I mean, you know, what is rich? Uh, Nobody with a standard of living comparable to what uh, working class people in uh, Canada or the UK uh, have these days. Um, So these rich peasants were something of a uh, phantom uh, created by the Bolshevik party to justify this kind of uh, aggressive uh, move against uh, some of the better off or perhaps some of the, the harder working peasants. Um, it often turned out in villages and the rush uh, to collectivize um, as a kind of uh, edict from above rather than uh, some kind of collective uh, process or, or the use of persuasion or whatever. Um, and uh, same in industry. These extraordinary targets are set for industrialization. I mean, the one that sticks in my mind was, you know, pig iron production was to go up by three times over. Uh, and this is a country which is just dragging itself out of uh, a, a, a very low level of uh, agricultural uh, existence in many uh, parts. It's a country where uh, perhaps uh, two thirds of people don't yet have access to electricity. Um, so uh, these targets are set, and again, enemies are found. So in 1928, um, there are industrial managers are put on trial. Um, you know, if things aren't going right, somebody must be to blame. And uh, this uh, kind of creation of enemies characterizes the, the politics. Uh, what underlie, underlies the whole thing in economic terms is this drive to industrialize and to collectivize agriculture at all and at any cost. So how did the industrialization drive affect the working class? I think to understand how it affected the working class, it's, it, I, I want to quote uh, Don Filzer, uh, who is a historian, a, a socialist. Um, his uh, work on uh, that period, uh, which was written in the 1980s, it's an absolute classic, uh, Soviet workers and Stalinist industrialization. I think it's still uh, in print. Um, quote, the Stalinist elite was able to emerge and to consolidate its position only by defeating challenges from two separate forces, the peasantry and the working class. And he then goes on to say that uh, the elite had to crush peasant resistance at whatever cost. It had to push through uh, that collectivization and gain control of the countryside. But there was never really a prospect of a political challenge uh, from uh, the peasantry for power. But with workers, it was different. They were concentrated in uh, towns. And although that political dispossession of the working class that we were talking about had happened in the 1920s, um, the working class was changing, just like in all all the things we know from our 19th century European history about workers being forced off the land into the towns um, and the working class expanding its ranks very, very rapidly. That process which happened in in this country over the course of the 19th century, was happening at absolutely breakneck speed. So people are being driven into these uh, towns. Um, During the uh, first and second five-year plans, I think 18 million people uh, moved into the towns. This is a a huge, huge uh, movement of people. And they arrived in these 
uh, in these appalling, dreadful conditions, often worse in some ways than uh, Europe in the 19th century, squashed into these barracks and communal flats. I mean, when I uh, first visited Russia in 1990, I mean, one of the things that really shocked me uh, was that even then, uh, you had working class families living in, in communal flats where you can have a flat of uh, three or four rooms, which you'd expect in these days would be uh, occupied by one family, even of not necessarily very well off uh, people. And each room contains a family of three, four or five uh, people. Now, that's in 1990. Um, and uh, the uh, extent to which people are living in barracks uh, in the 19. 20s and 30s was very much uh, greater. Um, food shortages. Uh, in Leningrad in 1928 to 33, that was the first five-year plan, which is uh, also named the Great Break, as you mentioned. Um, in Leningrad, uh, the consumption of meat, milk, and fruit fell by half during that uh, five-year period. And uh, this is not a country where people were eating lots of this stuff uh, to start with. Um, so uh, there's this drive for industrialization, there's this drive to build new factories, to increase the output of the factories uh, that exist. Um, and it's just as in 19th century Europe, uh, this is done on the backs uh, of uh, working class people. Um, and elements of compulsion uh, in uh, labor mobilization uh, start at this time. Um, so labor discipline becomes uh, largely criminalized so that, you know, not turning up in the morning becomes a criminal offense. Um, and uh, we see also in the first five-year plan the beginnings of the use of uh, prison uh, labor uh, for building big, uh, for big infrastructure projects, which has a long and uh, tragic history going through the 30s and 40s. Could you say a little bit about how workers responded to this? So first of all, skilled work, there was a short, because of this incredible drive to industrialize and these targets for uh, productivity, these targets for output, which the managers were scratching their heads trying to work out how on earth are we going to you know, make all that pig iron or produce all those shoes or produce those parts or whatever. And uh, endless stories of, you know, they would uh, produce the parts, but then the factory that was producing the other parts uh, didn't meet its targets. So then uh, you've got a lot of parts which are actually completely useless. Um, all this is going on, and skilled workers are bargaining with their feet. Uh, if they hear that a, a manager down the road is paying more because he's desperate to meet his targets, off they go, and uh, that manager takes them on regardless of there's no cooperation between these managers. So absolute uh, cutthroat uh, competition in that sense. How else did uh, workers uh, respond individually. They responded with physical attacks on managers. They responded with sabotage. They responded with absenteeism. And that was why, of course, uh, labor discipline offenses uh, became criminalized, as I mentioned. But there's also uh, a, a, a story of collective uh, working class uh, resistance uh, during uh, the first five year plan, which, of course, uh, historians. Uh, like Filzer in the 1980s knew about, uh, but um, it was very difficult to research because that information uh, was locked up quite carefully. And uh, I mean, the best, you know, if, if people want to read one book, I would suggest this book by uh, Jeffrey Rossman, Worker Resistance Under Stalin. 
which is an incredible story of uh, the organization among textile workers in Ivanova, which is, uh, it's, it's not Moscow, it's not Leningrad, but it's, it's one of the big uh, industrial regions of that time, a huge strike of 20,000 workers, a huge wave of strikes, in fact, uh, in 1932 in that community. And Rossman's dug up the most amazing uh, details about what inspired those workers to act. And uh, they were not uh, simply, uh, this was not just about, it was about the workplace conditions. It was about the cuts in pay, the reduction of living standards, um, about the rationing uh, and about all the other material things. But very inspiringly, if you like, it was about them saying, look, I th we thought this was a worker's state. We thought this was something, uh, some sort of socialism. And we want to see the benefits of that. And uh, a, a lot of political discussion that went on uh, during those movements. And, and looking back at the Great Break, which I think we would all think was a, a, a very bleak experience uh, for uh, the people who went through it. But actually, nevertheless, it's a very inspiring, uh, very readable uh, book by uh, Rossman. Thanks. Can we turn now to the countryside and... Can you say a little bit about how peasants were affected by the forced collectivization and about how they responded to that? Yeah. So, um, as you said, it, it was forced collectivization. And so any thought of persuasion was abandoned. Compulsion was introduced. And basically the order went down uh, from the top that all the uh, farms, with whatever exceptions, had to be collectivized uh, by such and such a date and these peasants who peasant families who'd only received this land in or taken not received that's wrong uh taken this land uh in 1917 and uh fought in 1917 under the slogan the land to those who work it uh when they uh learned of this uh collectivization uh drive they feared uh the worst and uh, there are many really uh, horrendous uh, accounts of peasants uh, slaughtering their cattle uh, and slaughtering their other livestock uh, rather than go into uh, the collective farm uh, with those uh, animals that they had uh, tended. So something we hear about a fair bit in Canada is what happened in Ukraine. Uh, in the early 1930s, in the famine there, the, it's often portrayed as a deliberate attack by Stalin's Russian-dominated central government on Ukrainians simply because they were Ukrainians, and sometimes it's even called a genocide. So can you talk about what happened in 1932-33, and, and how do you explain why it happened? Yes. So first of all, just uh, going uh, back a step, if you like, uh, that peasant resistance, I mentioned the slaughtering of the livestock, I mentioned those other things. Uh, the historians who've done a great job at trying to piece together the economic historians who've done a great job at piecing together what was the reality of grain production in those years, because these statistics were really hidden from view by the elite, uh, have concluded that uh, certainly in 1931 and 32 there was a really sharp cut in uh, grain production. And that's the, tip, that's the crucial uh, statistic. The whole point of this thing was supposed to be to improve agricultural productivity and to develop agriculture. And certainly uh, in the initial uh, seasons, uh, the very opposite happened, partly because of this peasant resistance and partly just because of the sheer chaos uh, created by this whole uh, process. And uh, in 1932-33, that led to a famine. Uh, 
uh, in uh, Ukraine, uh, particularly in uh, southeastern Ukraine, uh, in the Volga region, which is in Russia, along the uh, Volga River, uh, in North Caucasus, uh, which uh, your listeners will, will know of the wars in Chechnya in the 1990s. So there's uh, a number of uh, small republics there in the North Caucasus. This was in the 1930s, a completely agricultural uh, place. These are not Russian people. They're various Turkic and other uh, nationalities. Uh, don't speak Russian at home. Um, and uh, also in Kazakhstan. So uh, the damage done by the collectivization process, the fall in agricultural production, and the distribution system that favored the industrial centers um, resulted in this famine. The estimates of deaths range uh, across all of those places that I've mentioned uh, between 3 million and 6 million. There is evidence not that the elite decided to kill these people or decided to kill them because they were Ukrainians, for example. But there's plenty of evidence that not a finger was lifted to save these victims of disastrously bad policy and disastrously bad implementation. Um, and it's very clear, too, I mean, one crucial thing the historians have worked on, that uh, Stalin and the Politburo and the leadership of the Communist Party knew fine well uh, what was going on. Um, and uh, were quite aware of this um, of this famine. Now, was the famine directed against Ukrainians because they were Ukrainian? Well, it coincided with a reversal of uh, the policy uh, that had been implemented in the 1920s. If you remember, I talked about this kind of quite liberal uh, atmosphere in culture and so on. And the, the Soviet Union was a multicultural state. Ukraine was the largest non-Russian uh, nationality. And uh, great uh, room was afforded in the 1920s for the development of the non-Russian languages, uh, both, the, uh, as I mentioned, some which are not even Slavic languages uh, over in the Eastern uh, republics, but also uh, Ukrainian uh, and Belarusian, uh, which are Slavic languages. And there was a, a burgeoning of Ukrainian uh, culture in the 1920s. I mean, one thing I was astonished about, uh, I was in the market in Kiev um, uh, about 10 years ago with a friend, and I picked up this fantastic book of Ukrainian modernist art from the 1920s. And of course, we all know the Russian modernist art, Kandinsky and uh, Malievich and all those guys, but I've been really completely unaware. And I think this was a consequence of Stalinism. Uh, of this incredible flowering of Ukrainian art. Well, all this so-called Ukrainianization comes to a quick end in 1933, and that's a political uh, decision. And so what the historians can also see in the record is official prejudice against Ukrainians, against uh, Ukrainian culture. And one of the many people who paid for this with their lives was Mykola Skripnik, who was the head of the Ukrainian Communist Party. So this was not only about Ukrainian peasants or Ukrainian artists or Ukrainian workers, but even Ukrainian communists uh, fall victim uh, to this policy. Now, I don't know of uh, evidence that anyone tried to exacerbate the famine, particularly more uh, in Ukraine than in the Volga, right? So this is a policy of heartless wrecking uh, of people's lives. Uh, I mean, we're surrounded by it in the 
COVID pandemic, just to give a, a modern day analogy, um, this uh, killing people by omission, if you like, um, this was going on just as much in the Volga provinces, which are Russian, um, as in uh, Ukraine. Now, so it's, in other words, the answer is it's complicated. But what's also happened in the last 20 years in particular is that these arguments about history have become completely uh, politicized. And what we've seen, uh, particularly under President Yushchenko in Ukraine, uh, who came in in the Orange Revolution, so that was uh, 2008, and he kind of gave a, he, he, he left room for some very strongly nationalist historians to um, write about these questions in what I would say is a very, very one-sided way, and specifically uh, to portray the famine as something in which Ukrainians specifically were victims. That's one thing. Um, and, I, I mean, there was also a, a kind of political angle uh, to this about getting reparations and so on and so on, and, and that played a, a part in the degenerating political relationship between Ukraine and Russia at that time. But also, and the other historical uh, side of the coin, was that while portraying the famine as something in which Ukrainians specifically were victims uh, rather than uh, others, uh, to downplay the role of some Ukrainians in the genocide that followed in the 1940s, uh, when uh, they there were clearly Ukrainians who, along with Germans and others, uh, were perpetrators. Um, and uh, there were the Ukrainian nationalist organizations that in some way or another and under uh, complex circumstances uh, collaborated uh, with the Nazis. So what we've seen in historiography is a real uh, politicization of these questions. And uh, the writer who I think has been by far the most convincing on this, and, and uh, if, if people want to read up on it, uh, who's based in Canada uh, from a, a, a Ukrainian family, John Paul Himka, uh, who's done an absolutely marvelous job of um, arguing about uh, these different uh, horror stories from the mid uh, 20th century and how they should be interpreted and rebutting and rejecting uh, those uh, historians who have been influenced by this uh, Ukrainian nationalism. So a great deal of state repression took place between the Great Break and the late 1930s. Can you say something about that and what was really driving the repression? Yeah, I think the, f the first thing to say is that there are different drivers at different times. Um, it's going back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, it's, it's really easy in some uh, college in uh, the US or here in the UK for some uh, history teacher to sort of come and talk about Stalinist mass murder and so on as though it's a blanket, uh, you know, horror story starting from 1917 and going through to 1991. That, of course, isn't how history happens. That's nonsense. Um, and there are very clear phases um, so, and in the period uh, that I covered in my research, the early 1920s, you, you've got some, you know, you've got political repression, which means if you talk up and you criticize the Communist Party and say it's betraying the cause 
And there were, you know, many brave socialists who who did that, either people who'd been in the Communist Party and thought things were going the wrong way, or people who'd been uh, closer to the Socialist Revolutionary Party or the anarchists or uh, some of the other socialist groups, uh, you would quickly find yourself in a lot of trouble. And in a bad case, you would uh, find yourself in uh, Siberia. That's pointed and pointed at activists and obviously extremely damaging to uh, the working class as a, uh, as a fighting force. Uh, because it, the effect it has is to shut people up and make them scared uh, to say what they think. Now, when we get to the great break, uh, the first five-year plan, we have a completely different uh, type of repression. Uh, we have all this stuff about wreckers, saboteurs, kulaks, against whom we, uh, the communists, are, are fighting. And we have the first mass arrests, the first mass deportations, as I mentioned, the deportation of people to uh, Kazakhstan, uh, there were many, many other uh, deportations and mass, in some cases, mass uh, shootings. Um, and that brings us really into what is what is usually called by historians the, the, the Stalinist era. In 1934, uh, so during the second five-year plan, uh, things take a new turn. Uh, Stalin's I think deputy is a fair word. Uh, one of the highest ranking uh, people in the leadership, uh, Sergei Kirov, very, very popular uh, communist leader, was, uh, was killed in uh, Leningrad. And this lets loose a kind of manic wave of uh, repression, not only against just anybody who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when the uh, police arrive, but specifically on Communist Party members. Because by this time, of course, the Communist Party is a very big organization. It's not like, you know, you mentioned it as a sort of vanguard in 1917, but now it's like an administrative machine of hundreds of thousands of people. And they're not all as reliable as the leadership would like them to be. And uh, so uh, with the assassination of Kirov, there's, there's this huge repressive uh, wave uh, which is turned on Communist Party members. And um, one of the many... Uh, amazing literary uh, depictions of uh, Stalinism, uh, the case of Comrade Tulayev uh, by uh, Victor Serge is based on his perception of this uh, shocking uh, change uh, in uh, Communist Party culture. What follows after that in 1936 and 37 is the so-called Great Terror, where this thing really goes on to another uh, level. And it's from that period that all the stories of people denouncing each other, denouncing their managers, denouncing their workers, denouncing perhaps um, their uh, competitors for uh, people's affections, denouncing anybody and everybody uh, gets underway. And this uh, hysteria and atmosphere of witch hunt, um, which uh, pervades uh, really all, all of uh, urban and much of rural uh, life um, and millions of people are sent to the camps for minor offences, such as being late for work three days running, or uh, or, or wide-ranging political offences, going to church ten years earlier, or organising a strike ten years earlier, and the camp system then becomes a huge uh, industrial complex. And then there are further episodes. So during the war, it changes again. You have the deportation of enemy nationalities, so-called. So the 
uh, Crimean Tatars, for example, the Tatars who are based in Crimea, which is in Ukraine, are uh, put on uh, wagons and transports and uh, taken to uh, Kazakhstan um, and um, returned actually only in, uh, in the early 1990s. Um, and uh, I remember meeting activists there who were trying to re-establish the uh, Tatar culture uh, and language and to find the books which had been taken uh, and locked up uh, in an uh, inaccessible library in Moscow where an attempt is really made to destroy the language entirely. Um, POWs enter the camp system during the war. That further complicates things. Um, and then, uh, look, we could spend five podcasts describing this awful machine of repression and the scale of it. It really comes to a, not to an end, but it uh, enters a new phase after the death of Stalin. And when we think about the human spirit, what's really extraordinary is to think about the revolts, uh, this wave of revolts that there was in the camps in 1953 when they heard about Stalin's uh, death. Uh, and I think the arrest of Beria also uh, helped, which followed a few months later. Um, and uh, these prisoners, uh, unarmed uh, against the prison guards in these distant uh, Siberian locations, mounted a series of uh, revolts. And really the camp system as a, as a large-scale industrial complex uh, is dismantled. Now, you asked about the numbers. So very quickly, um, uh, it, it, it's difficult to measure. That's uh, like many of these things. Um, we have some figures we know very well. So we have the People's Commissariat of Domestic Affairs, the NKVD, uh, and they kept very good records. So in 1930, they shot 20,000 people. In 1931, they shot 10,000 people. And then it's between one and 3,000 a year uh, up until 1936. In 1936, they shot 353,000 people. And in 1937, they shot 329,000 people. So that's, that's uh, executions, okay? Um, there are obviously a lot of people uh, died in the camps. Um, and again, I mean, there's a, it sounds kind of ghoulish, but I mean, I think it's really important to read the literature about the camps. Read... Uh, Solzhenitsyn before he turned into a grumpy, miserable anti-communist. Read Cancer Ward. Read uh, the short stories of Valam Shalamov, uh, who Solzhenitsyn said he learned everything he knew about writing about the camps from this guy Valam Shalamov, who was an amazing uh, character. I think it's important to kind of try to get a sense of uh, the life and death in these camps. 2.7 million, that's a that's kind of my reading of all the different estimates by the historians. Okay, so those are the deaths. Um, prisoner population. Let's take the United States of America, 2012. Um, and I, I just, uh, I, when you asked me to do the podcast, I looked up my notes from when I was teaching the students. So I used to present them with this comparison. Uh, slightly out of date, but I, I imagine the numbers are pretty much the same now. Okay, so USA, 2012, 6 million prisoners, which if you take that as a, a proportion of the population, it's 19 out of every 1,000 people. Okay, that's a lot. I mean, in African-American communities, right, everybody knows somebody who's in jail. 
USSR 1948, so when the camp system was kind of at its largest extent, nearly 3 million in prison camps and filtration camps, but crucially also 6 million special settlers uh, who are sent into exile in uh, distant villages. And again, sorry if I'm, uh, if I'm giving too many uh, recommendations for reading, stop me, but uh, the, 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 one of the really great uh, novels of the 1930s, The Children of the Arbat by Anatoly Rubakov, is all about a young man who makes an out-of-place joke on a demonstration, uh, a May Day demonstration, and finds himself in this uh, category of special settlers. And boy, does he stay there for a long time. Um, now, so USSR 1948, 16 in prison and 34 in exile out of every thousand people. So that's a total of 50 compared to that USA total of 19. So it's a lot more than that USA total. So everybody knew somebody uh, who'd gone away. Um, Most of those people are in uh, exile, which isn't quite the same as being behind barbed wire. But, you know, if you look at the transport system and the impossibility of escaping uh, from these places in Siberia, it's not easy. Um, So uh, those are the figures. That I so, have. Thanks. You know, there are a small number of people on the left, though, that, that question these kind of claims in a way that's trying to downplay the level of repression and suffering and death that happened under Stalin. So, you know, why should we be confident about those kinds of claims that, that you and other historians are making? Okay. So they're not claims. Uh, I haven't studied this history specifically because all historians have their uh, specialism. But in preparing my lectures for students and just trying to know what I was talking about, I've read the work of other historians. So there are demographic historians like Stephen Wheatcroft and uh, John Paul Getty. Uh, and in Russia, in more recent years, Oleg uh, Naumov, who I think works with Getty, and Oleg uh, Klevnuk, who is more of a political historian, but has also paid a lot of attention to this stuff. So they've spent their lives studying these details. They constantly adjust, and if you you know if you took all their stuff, you'd see how they change their mind as they go along. It gets more accurate. They keep their, uh, I suppose nowadays Excel sheets and uh, records to try to estimate as accurately as they can uh, what was going on. That's what they do. Um, now uh, you know if you don't think that is true, okay. So you know you don't think what the climate scientists are doing is true either. I can't help. Um, as for this minority of people on the left, I don't know. I don't know what that word means quite in this context. Um, but in my experience, they're usually not motivated by an interest in history, but they they have a a well. I'm going to use the word twisted. They have a twisted belief in something they call socialism that is about a strong state and control by that state, and they think that somehow it was good uh, that all these uh, people were being. Uh, dealt with firmly by what they see as a socialist state. So something we also occasionally hear from people on the left who are uh, looking favorably on the USSR, um, people bring up the the role that the, the military played in defeating Nazi Germany as a way of deflecting socialist criticism um, of the USSR and sometimes to defend Stalin himself. How would you respond to that? So first of all, I would say that uh, the uh, almost the resistance to the Nazi invasion, which is almost impossible to understand when you read about uh, this kind of titanic life and death struggle, which you know claimed uh, millions and millions of uh, victims. So 
I'm I'm fond of repeating whenever it's suggested that you know it was Britain that beat the Nazis that Leningrad lost three times as many citizens during the Second World War as the entire British Empire put together, three times as many, uh, one city, um, and um, so I think you know to understand that resistance, uh, the first thing we have to say is that it was really no thanks to Stalin as the commander in chief that that resistance was mounted. In fact, his incredible miscalculation uh, at the beginning of the war uh, undoubtedly cost uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, the miscalculation being that he had this pact with Hitler, which is itself uh, a, a political fact uh, that you know we can dispute. Um, his apologists would say that he knew the war was coming and that was just to buy time. And I think there may be some uh, sense to that argument. Uh, not, I, I don't want to say it's a defensible action. I just want to say that that is part of the explanation for this pact. What's much harder to explain is that when his spies were risking their lives to get back to him the information that actually a major invasion was being prepared in uh, June 1941, he, he refused to believe that or to believe even that it might be one of the possibilities. And so when the invasion takes place, you know, Stalin basically has this kind of meltdown, uh, which didn't happen to him very often and, and kind of disappears off the scene for a week. Um, and uh, he then picks himself up and, and gets back into this, uh, this role of commander in chief and comes on the radio and uh, addresses the nation on the radio and says, brothers and sisters, friends. And, you know, people have never heard him speaking like this before because it would be comrades uh, previously. And um, just this, you know, this whole change of language, um, he makes this uh, turnabout, but not before doing this incredible damage. And, you know, I, I mean, historians of the war will, will give you more about, for example, this notorious order that Soviet troops could not, under any circumstances, retreat, which resulted in huge numbers being then taken prisoner um, because they were simply uh, they were in a position with insufficient weapons. If you can't retreat, you get captured. That's what happens. Uh, that's the way the thing works. Um, and uh, in incredible damage uh, that was done. Not to mention the quote preparation unquote for the war of, of, of demoralizing society in the army with these arrests and these uh, the, 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 the witch hunts, which affected the army command as much as uh, the Communist Party as a whole. So uh, that's the first thing I'd say. I mean, the second thing I'd say is that um, I think the way to understand that resistance is there's a kind of makeshift alliance between the Soviet people and the regime uh, at that point, and that they decide to stop fighting with each other because there is indeed this uh, external enemy uh, that needs to be dealt with at this absolutely uh, horrendous uh, cost. So um, you know, don't, let's 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 not um, perpetuate myths about Stalin, the war hero. Uh, let's look at the history as the historians have written it and try to uh, understand uh, how and why these things happen. So, as a result of the hyper-industrialization and, and forced collectivization, a, a distinctive new kind of social order was built, which it was called socialist by its rulers. Uh, was, seen, was also seen as socialist by most, although not all, socialists around the world. And this model of society was then in, later imposed on Eastern Europe, and it was the basis of reorganizing society in 
countries where communist parties took power, such as China, Yugoslavia, Vietnam, Cuba, and, and elsewhere. Looking at the broad features of this social order, what stands out as being its most important features? So uh, I think the first thing to say is that the uh, definition of socialism on which uh, this system uh, worked was based on turning Marx's idea of socialism uh, into its opposite. And in 1936, uh, a new constitution was adopted in the USSR, which included the words, quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his work. Um, and that is a misquotation of a famous piece of writing by Marx, actually one of these beautiful pieces where Marx is there and, you know, sitting in London with no money, um, writing a, a critique of the program of the German uh, socialists. And what he says is that to, to go from necessity to freedom, society will cross this bridge. And that in the, when we cross that bridge, it will, we'll have a society where it will be uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. But instead of being to each according to their need in 1936 in the Soviet Union, it's to each according to their work, which actually is a very good uh, statement of the way capitalism works. And that constitution, incidentally, was adopted also by uh, the Chinese under Mao and even by the Cubans. And uh, I remember a very poignant moment when uh, we uh, got some money together. We had a little holiday in uh, Cuba and we went straight for the National uh, Museum, there being a historian in the party. And, uh, you know, there, there, there were pictures of the banners and so on uh, up in the 1960s when they're the, the, uh, building the economy. And there it is, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his work. So uh, that tells us something, I think, about the realities of this social order. I think it also helps to think of the Soviet Union and these other states as what we might call development states, developmental states. They were faced with these tasks of economic development that other states outside the rich world were faced with. Industrialization, electrification, literacy and health aims, provision of urban infrastructure, the stuff that had been done in Germany and the UK uh, in the 19th century. They accomplished some of those tasks well, uh, some badly, generally far better than the states that remained clearly in the capitalist camp. And, and when we were younger in the 70s and 80s, uh, uh, people loved to make the comparison between China and India with the, the statistics, the level of electrification, the level of literacy, the level of uh, healthcare availability, and so on and so on. Now, the Soviet Union was the first of these development states, if you like, and its origin in the revolution meant that there were some very progressive policies in the 1920s. We've spoken about those on women or nationalities, both then reversed at later stages. So uh, in, in uh, the Stalinist period, among other things, abortion again becomes illegal, uh, divorce again becomes very difficult, and so on. But there's also a, a ruling elite uh, that was not strong, but actually that makes it worse. It was not strong, not anchored in private property, not kind of the, you know, this mansion's been in the family for hundreds of years, like the uh, members of the uh, Boris Johnson's cabinet. Um, but, uh, and because of, of lacking that kind of strength anchored in property, resorting even more easily to these very, very brutal 
forms of repression. So, I mean, I think those are, that's the uh, combination that we have to uh, get our heads around. So what led to the collapse of the social order at the end of the 1980s? I think the, first of all, the Soviet Union's own contradictions began to accumulate, and there's a whole history in the post-war period um, as, as a development state, if you like, it entered into trading relationships increasingly with the, the rich countries in the West. Those worked to its disadvantage. And so by the 1980s, it was exporting oil and using the proceeds to buy wheat. And a fall in the price of oil in the mid-1980s was a serious problem for the Soviet Union. And actually, uh, the point at which it began to build up its uh, foreign currency debts for the first uh, time. Its technologies were increasingly lopsided. The emphasis on military, on uh, space exploration and so on. But also there was an ideological crisis. You can only tell people they're living under socialism uh, for so long uh, under these uh, comparatively difficult uh, conditions and with a complete kind of lack of uh, social life in many respects and political life and for them to continue to buy into it. And of course, from that point of view, the incorporation of Eastern Europe, European countries into the Soviet system made things worse. I mean, people in East Germany knew damn well how people in West Germany uh, were living. People in Poland had a much better sense of what was going on in Western Europe uh, than people in uh, the USSR. And they knew uh, that the comparison in terms of living standards, in terms of democratic freedoms, was unfavorable. And so in the 1980s, you get the growth of the big independent union movement in Poland, and you see the whole thing starting to unravel. So I think maybe it might make this the last question. Um, the, for people today who understand what capitalism is doing to our world, what's at stake in how we understand the USSR? And does this history really matter to us today? I think it matters an, an awful lot. People talk about the benefit of hindsight being a bad thing. Uh, but actually, the benefit of hindsight is a fantastic, it's a, it's a great thing because it gives us the chance to reflect, uh, to, to understand in a way that simply wouldn't have been possible at the time. Uh, people who lived through the 1917 revolution, the Civil War, uh, these uh, events in the 1920s, uh, when uh, Stalinism uh, arrived in its late 1920s form, when the Great Break took place, I mean, we've got lots and lots of examples from the memoirs of communists at that time, they really didn't see this coming. Um, and even those who've been driven into opposition, into exile, uh, the Trotskyists, the people from the democratic centralist tendency in the Bolshevik party who were out in Siberia, they hadn't seen uh, the implications because how could they? Uh, they were living through this uh, for the first time. Uh, they did their best to understand uh, what they were living through, but we can do I don't want to say better than them because we can just look at it with, with that benefit of hindsight, with that opportunity to reflect, with that opportunity to put this thing in its whole uh, global context, to see that uh, 1917 was this incredible uh, release of energy to bring about uh, revolutionary change and how far it got and how far it didn't get. We can also see, which I think is very important, uh, we can see the influence of Stalinism, which went far beyond the borders of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union, as, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our conversation, there was this obsession with 
industrial development. Uh, that was the key to everything. Uh, and I think that then fed into uh, the workers' movement in the West in a really uh, negative way. Uh, so that movement became kind of immune to the idea that uh, all the technologies that developed after the war and the labor processes um, were very much shaped by capitalism and, and could be done completely differently. I think that aspect of our uh, fight against capitalism really got uh, lost. All sorts of ideas about strong leaders and strong states and everything, which I really think could probably be largely put in the rubbish bin, uh, also flourished on account of this uh, much wider influence of Stalinism in the workers' movement. So I think there's, a, the, 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 there's enormous uh, amount for us to learn from that history. And also, I, I mean, even uh, to, to get hope from, uh, you, if you read whether it's the, 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 the stories I uncovered about the early 20s and the people who tried even then to start doing things differently, or, for example, there's a, uh, a wonderful young uh, socialist uh, writer in uh, Moscow, Ilya Budraitskis, who's written the history of the socialist dissident movements of the 60s and 70s, who were operating under unbelievably difficult conditions, who were going into the local library and looking for copies of State and Revolution by Lenin, which was probably the most kind of democratic thing that Lenin uh, wrote in his life, or looking at uh, works of earlier uh, 19th century Russian socialists or whatever, and trying to kind of claw back that real meaning of uh, socialism. So, you know, those stories are all important too uh, in uh, the 21st century. kind of society we can call Stalinist was first built in the USSR as the result of a modernizing counter-revolution at the end of the 1920s. A similar society was built in China after the revolution of 1949. Joining me to discuss this from Hong Kong is Kevin Lin. So Kevin, welcome to Victor's Children. Uh, can you just briefly tell listeners what qualifies you to discuss this topic? Yeah, thanks for having me, David. Um... I have been deeply interested in uh, in understanding Chinese society, its politics, its people, the social movements in China uh, for over a decade now. Um, so my, my main um, focus has been on primarily on workers uh, workers movement in China uh, over the last twenty years. Uh, I mean, China obviously is a very complex uh, society. It changes rapidly. You know, there's all very often people say, you know. If your information is uh, a couple of years old, it's already way dated. It may be exaggeration, but I think it does highlight the the, the fast changing nature of of Chinese society uh, uh, over the last uh, half a century and, and more. And 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 just the kind of social transformations um, is it, just it's breathtaking over the last century. Uh, so really trying to understand China is it, is a huge uh, monumental task. And, and I think I, I, I see myself as part of a collective effort by activists and academics to really try to understand China, not for its own sake, but for, for informing, uh, for, uh, you know, organizing and activist strategies. Could you just tell listeners a little bit about 
what Chinese society was like before the 1949 revolution. Yeah, so, so um, you know, by, by the 1940s, you know, China already had a, had a century of colonialism, uh, large-scale uprisings, um, several civil wars, uh, conflicts, um, but also attempts at social reforms and revolutions. So if you think about 1940, it's already, it's, you can sort of think of it as, uh, as the end of a century of, of uh, monumental social change. Uh, so China's last dynasty ended in 1911. And, um, and in the ensuing, you know, between 1911 and 1949, there was three decades of, of uh, internal conflict as well as wars with Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, you know, it was a country devastated by, devastated by conflicts and famines, uh, um, you know, by, by the 1940s. And so it was very understandable. You know, there was a clearly a collective yearning for a new and different uh, society, something that is, you know, radically different from the past, but also, you know, strong enough and prosperous enough uh, uh, so that, you know, uh, the people have a, a stable uh, society. Um, so, so then there comes the, the revolution of 1949. Could you say something about to what extent capitalism had developed in China? By that point, absolutely. absolutely. Um, I think what we consider capitalist, cap- modern capitalism, um, has its seeds already back in the late nineteenth uh, century. Um, you know, under basically global pressures, um, uh, reformers, um, those are still you know within the elite um, of the Qing Dynasty. But reformers were attempting to and introducing. Uh, uh, industrial production, for example, and modern technologies, in the hope of creating a a um, modern capitalist economy. But it was very small uh, uh, until the early nineteen uh, twenties and thirties. Uh, uh, there were it was largely limited to a few areas, for example, Shanghai and Canton, which which is today's is Guangdong uh, province. Um, so those areas, there were uh, some industrial uh, economy and, and there began to emerge a industrial working class. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it, you, you may, and the listeners may have heard of this 1927 uh, Chinese revolution, 1925 to 27. That was in part uh, a, a urban uh, uh, a working class movement. Uh, uh, so, so, but, but, you know, capitalism did not really flourish uh, uh, on a large scale uh, until after 1949. So most of the population was living in rural areas. Can you say something about those conditions? Absolutely. So yeah, the, the vast majority of, of the Chinese population uh, by the late 1940s were living in the countryside. The cities are uh, not small uh, by modern standards, but, uh, but the country is predominantly uh, rural. And as I said, the, the modern industrial economy was uh, relatively small. It was emerging, was growing. Uh, and, you know, uh, and, and, uh, the, and because of the conflict, so the economy was uh, suffering, uh, you know, huge inflations. Um, so, yeah, so it, it wasn't until, uh, you know, after 1949 that the economy really stabilized. So what did happen in 1949? Um, so... Uh, you know, I was, as we were talking earlier, um, the the nineteen forty nine is really the accumulation of a, a, century, a century of of social changes. Uh, so in the nineteen thirties and the forties, uh, there was a 
very, you know, very brutal civil war between the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party uh, in China. Um, so by, but by mid to late 1990, 1940s, the Communist Party was able to uh, control most of the ter- Chinese territory as, as we know now uh, and, and, and drove the Nationalist Party to, to Taiwan. Um, so, uh, so in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party cl- proclaimed the, the founding of the People's Republic of China uh, in Beijing, um, very much on the promise of, of a new and more equitable and prosperous uh, society that, that, uh, that's going to deliver um, uh, uh, yeah, a better society. Uh, that's, that's you know, the term New China it was used, uh, was that really capsulate that promise? It's a different China. It's, it's nothing uh, uh, like, like the old China. And who ruled that new society? What social group? Yeah, so, so, um, so, so in the first decade or so after 1949, uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, wanted to govern through uh, a kind of like a coalition or alliances of different classes or social groups. Uh, it was workers, it was soldiers, it was peasants. Uh, it was also included was the you know, so-called patriotic industrialists or capitalists. Uh, because you know the the Communist Party when it began to uh, uh, rule China, govern China, uh, it, it recognized it needed the support of of the big industrialists as long as they are supportive of, of the new regime. So it was a, a coalition or alliance, but it was all of course very much dominated by by the Communist Party. Um, but it kind of changed, uh, you know, by nineteen sixties, by late nineteen forty, uh, sorry, nineteen fifties and, and and early nineteen sixties. You know, it was already clear by, by that time that a new bureaucratic stratum uh, already emerged. Uh, it was essentially people who have included two kinds of people, if you will. You know, the people who have been with the Communist Party, with the armies uh, that, that fought the dual wars that, that brought um, uh, uh, forward the, the Chinese Revolution. But they also incorporated some of the, uh, the old you know, bureaucrats, uh, functionaries, essentially, from the old uh, a political system. Uh, so nevertheless, you, you began to see this new political uh, stratum emerging that began to um, uh, enjoy uh, benefits and privileges that the ordinary Chinese people didn't have. Even though by today's standard, the, the kind of privileges they had are not, you know, it's, not, it's nothing, you know, I think people won't blink an eye right now, you know, today in China. But at the time, there was nevertheless there's a sense that this is a new governing uh, uh, social group that, that that emerged and that is that has different interests uh, from from the ordinary uh, Chinese people. So there was already a sense there is some something that that was wrong, um, but it was it was uh, it was still very early um, when you know the 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 sort of play, the new you know bureaucratic stratum had levers you know had they had control over decisions, but they themselves. Because of the economy was still centralized, planned economy, so the um, the personal wealth um, it, it was not there. There were privileges, but it wasn't uh, like the 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 the, the cadres, uh, the leaders accumulated a huge amount of personal wealth. So, how did these new rulers change Chinese society? Um, the the really the the I think you know there are few significant um, transformations. Uh, that happened um, 
you know, uh, in 90, uh, after 1949, the probably the most significant is the uh, the abolition, the abolition of the gentry class and the land reform that took place primarily in the 1950s uh, through a series of changes. Um, but essentially what it does is, is abolish a very oppressive gentry class uh, that has governed rural China for centuries. Um, and that obviously had a lot of popular support among, among peasants. Um, uh, and, and so there was a, a period, a very brief period of, of, of uh, privatization. So essentially the uh, Communist Party uh, implemented land reform and gave the land uh, to, to peasants for a few years before it, it collectivized the land. But nevertheless, the, the impact of just abolishing that, that gentry class was, uh, was extremely significant. The other thing that was significant is industrialization uh, in the cities. Um, from 1949 to 1976, uh, uh, this so-called Mao era, that was very fast. Uh, China experienced an extremely rapid uh, industrialization, urban-based highway industrialization. Um, it, it, you know, d- despite all the political campaigns that did cause disruption, et cetera, you know, the Chinese economy was actually growing pretty fast throughout the Maoist period. Sometimes, you know, when people remember or uh, the Mao era now, you know, people tend to think it's, uh, you know, the economy stagnated. It, it was actually not true. Right? The, um, the uh, industrial growth was, was really, really fast. Uh, I think 7 8% or sometimes 10% in some years, uh, although from very low, you know, very low base, but nevertheless, it was the, the economy was already uh, industrialized um, by, you know, on the eve of, of China's uh, market reform in, 19, uh, in the late 1970s. So this industrialization happens, the land reform happens. Uh, is this something which is actually controlled by workers and peasants? I mean, is there yeah, actually any, any democracy or is this something which is done by these new rulers from above? It, it, was, it was very much. Well, I, I think there are, you know, that, that's an extremely interesting question um, and still being discussed and debated uh, in the sense that, I mean, obviously it's a top-down uh, you know, state-driven uh, uh, land reform and, and industrialization, um, but it, I also uh, it has it had popular support. For example, land reform obviously enjoyed at least in in the first phase when you know the land was given back to peasants, there was was wide uh, uh, peasant support. Uh, but it was definitely coercive. Um, I think I've seen things an analysis that compares the industrial uh, the uh, land reform in China and in, in the Soviet Union it was it was slightly less co- uh, coercive uh, in China but nevertheless it was it was top down uh, it, it wasn't done through a uh, bottom up uh, grassroots effort in the cities um, the industrialization the broad pattern is similar um, so, so actually there's a, a recently uh, a interesting really interesting book that came out a couple of years ago by a sociologist, uh, Joey Andreas. Uh, the book is called uh, Disenfranchised, the Rise and, the Rise and, and Fall of uh, industrial, industrial Citizenship in China. So what the book did was it looked very closely at the, the Mao era uh, and, the, the, and the early post-Mao era, but you look at what, what really was happening in the workplace. So obviously, you know, to really vastly simplify the story, because uh, it's really great book and a lot of details, but to, to really simplify, uh, obviously workers, natural worker in China in the Mao era do not have democracy in the workplace. 
um, and you know it, it didn't run the workplace. It didn't make key decisions. Given that um, uh, workers were able to access kind of what what Andreas called uh, industrial citizenship, uh, that is, uh, they have some capacity to to uh, uh, hold uh, supervisors and, and managers. Well, they were not called managers at the time; they were called cadres or leaders at the time, accountable. And they were workers were able to affect effect some uh, some decision in the workplace, but obviously it's not the same as democracy or economic democracy, workplace democracy. But what I want to highlight is is this this contestation in the workplace, right? There's top down state driven industrial policy, but at at the same time in the workplace, workers were also trying to assert themselves to some degree uh, to have some kind of autonomy and uh, uh, and and decision making power. Do you have a position on the question of what the mode of production was? Under, uh, you know, in this in this era, how would you characterize the society? That's uh, that's always the the, the tricky question, right? Uh, I, 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 yeah, it's it's a tricky because it's um, you know, kind of if you will, there was no no market relations were, were abolished under Mao, so you know, workers were not dependent on the market. For example, it was not a a, a, a wage labor system. Per se, but the, the, at the same time, the workers were heavily dependent on on on, on the state, right, for uh, job assignments. You know, so workers cannot just quit and, and go to another workplace. They have to get permission from their uh, cadres or workplace leaders um, to to transfer. So, so, so the, the dependency, workers' dependency, uh, their livelihood dependency are not on the market. So it was not a market-driven society, but it was heavily dependent on, on the on the state and the bureaucratic stratum that emerged uh, after 1949. Um, at the same time, the, the method of industrialization, the industrial economy was very much you know, similar to other industrial economy at the time. Um, the factory system basically copied mostly from the Soviet Union. Um, so it was you know, very top-down factory uh, system that is man- yeah, managed from top-down by, by, by politically appointed Leaders, so I think it's this hybrid system. Uh, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to to the perspective of state capitalism, but I I, I sometimes I also acknowledge that you know when some people use state socialism, I I don't I I, I, I the first thing I want to know is what do they mean by that? Because uh, labels you know they're they're label because a lot of the labels also are are are, are, are characterization developed out of uh, of of engagement with Soviet Union, right? Uh, it was how people analyze Russia, another Soviet Union at the time, and then look at China and say, oh, maybe that's the same or similar. Um, but but for, for me, I think for the most important thing is like, what do you mean if you call China a state capitalist society or state socialist society? I mean, it's definitely not a genuinely socialist society, that's for sure. But what it was, uh, I think for me, it's it's more important to to really talk about the, 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 the details rather than uh, a than one label or the other. So I wanted to ask you about one specific event that some listeners might have heard about that happened um, in the 1950s or process, that is the the Great Leap Forward. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about what that was about? Right. Um, So the the Great Leap Forward uh, was uh, fundamentally a political campaign to deepen uh, industrialization uh, in the cities and in the countryside. I think... You know, for some, this is this is basically a attempt uh, uh, on the part of Mao 
uh, Mao Zedong to and the Communist Party to to continue the revolution. Um, so basically, after 1949, the the Communist Party found itself, you know, governing a, a, a such a vast country with with you know economic uh, uh, stagnation or a uh, uh, lot of economic problem, but also a society that 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 you know this question: How do you build a new society, right? So, so greatly forward, you know, needs to be understood in the context of of basically the the Communist Party and Chinese state wanting to uh, uh, to increase uh, industrialization, but also to to build a new society based on industrial economy. Um, but obviously, it has had led to devastating uh, impact, as we're going to talk about next. But uh, because you know, it's largely done by you know your top top down fashion. Um, so you know, workers and peasants, or uh, for the most part, passive uh, uh, sort of uh, if you call it victims or passive so recipients of this policy. So then, could you say something about the famine that happened at the end of the nineteen fifties? Absolutely, um, I think that that that's that's always a very uh, you know for many a controversial, still controversial after sixty years, say sixty some years, um, anywhere between twenty thirty. Or more millions of people uh, uh, perished in 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 the famines. Um, well, the exact figure we, we don't know. There was a lot of uh, calculations and and estimate, but I think that the basic disagreement is that it's in the in the tens of millions, 10, 20 million or more. Uh, so what happened was um, there's a great leap forward. You know, in this attempt to really drive through high industrialization, um, decisions were made that. Um, that basically um, take agency from uh, away from from workers and peasants. So it's, it wasn't workers and peasants that making the decisions about what to produce or how much to produce. So in this attempt to you know one out one up each other. So basically, all the the regional uh, leaderships uh, and down to the bottom are trying to all compete each other. So there's this directive to produce more and more. And 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 the, so the the production target began become uh, began to be falsified. Uh, so it's just become realistic to actually produce that much, and that including grains. So 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 that that contributed to to uh, uh, basically a shortage of, of food across uh, across much of the country. And there was also obviously there was weather issues, and there was like crop failures at the same time. But but I think fundamentally it, it's a political disaster more than a natural disaster. Politically driven by the leadership in Beijing. That's correct. Okay, so something else that people who don't know much about China might have heard about was the Cultural Revolution. So could you talk about what that was? I realize it's a complicated uh, period in, in history, but could you kind of give us an introduction to the Cultural Revolution and, and how it played out over? The period of time when it was happening. Absolutely, um, yeah. Culture, cultural revolution is, you know, again, uh, sort of starting in nineteen sixty six. It's depending on how you look at it. Uh, it's the most intense period is three years from nineteen sixty six to nineteen sixty nine. But but normally people refer to a ten year period from sixty six to seventy six uh, at the time time of Mao's death. Um, so I want to preface this by saying um, the cultural revolutionary uh, cultural revolution is still debated not 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 just for academic purposes. It's de- debated among um, 
very small, but you know, the left in China who are interesting question, just what kind of society was China, right? I think that's the question you're posing still have a lot of uh, implications for for activists and for organizings uh, inside China as well. You know, if it was uh, some kind of socialist society, was it, if there's a positive thing that, that could be learned, then that could those things could inform our current today strategy. Uh, if it's just all bad, then, then the idea is to abandon anything to do with that period. So just I want to press with saying that that still has very strong contemporary uh, relevance uh, for, for people in China. So what China, the Chinese Cultural Revolution was, uh, again, it, it, was, it was such a complex affair, uh, but, but primarily there were, if you think of it's like two, two interconnected things happening at the same time. One level is a, a political ideological struggle at the elite level. That was between Mao and his ally on the one hand, and people like Deng Xiaoping and, and Liu Shaoqi and others on the other hand. Over just what, how, over the future of China, essentially. Um, uh, for, for people like Deng Xiaoping at the time, uh, 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 the, the, the most important thing is, is to have a stable uh, society and economy. Uh, so he, Deng Xiaoping was very much opposed to the, the political ideological campaigns at the time uh, and wanted to, uh, to grow the economy. Even you know, including if it means like you know, opening up the economy a little bit, or or introduce uh, incent- more incentive to workers to to work harder. Um, so that's why Mao, you know, some of you listeners may remember this phrase "capitalist voter." That that's just the accusation made by Mao against people like Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi, and others, because Mao believed that they are taking China back to a capitalist road. Uh, that's why they're called capitalist voters. Um, so there was uh, the, the the elite level. There was a str- you know struggle over uh, power, over ideology, over the direction of of Chinese society. But there's also a popular uh, movement from below. But here it gets co- very complex because it's not just one revolt. It was many many things. Uh, so Mao. Uh, so um, so the, the Cultural Revolution really started because Mao called on people to to rebel. There was already, uh, you know, by by the 1960s, there was already uh, 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 some grievances in society, right? People who are unhappy with the going back to the new uh, uh, bureaucratic stratum that that emerged. A lot of people are already unhappy with with the direction this is going. So when Mao called people to rebel, uh, uh, a lot of young people, students, etc., and also workers uh, responded to that call and began to. Uh, hold uh, the the leaders and countries responsible, you know, uh, criticize them, and and in in some cases, uh, uh, you know, violently uh, uh, confronted them. Uh, but what I'm trying to to point out and emphasize is is it wasn't just a elite thing. There was already at a societal level uh, grievances and discontent that was uh, uh, that sort of bubbling up. That was then that got re, uh, unleashed uh, because Mao's call to to rebel. Um, so so in society at a societal level, there's a genuine sense that we are are not happy with the direction of Chinese society uh, right now and Chinese politics, and we want to develop a different kind of society. Or so there's a you know some radical critique of 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 you know at the time Chinese socialism. By by workers, by intellectuals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Uh, but it's also just want to end on that point. It was also complex because it, it quickly fractured. There are just so many factions and different um, actors involved with different interests. So it, it did became uh, quite chaotic uh, um, uh, within a few years. And that that's primarily how a lot of people, including a lot of people in China, remember the Cultural Revolution, that it was a chaotic period. But I do want to point out, it wasn't just sen- you know senseless violence. It was actually there generally political questions and 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 so social uh, discontent and and popular sentiments that uh that made made that cultural revolution happen and and uh and the ring turned out so so you have one wing of the ruling layer ruling class calling on people to rebel essentially against the other layer another the other wing but then you have a lot of debate right amongst the people who are rising up about what they're trying to change and and uh, how to do it. And some of them begin to question the, some of the most radical ones begin to qu- question the entire ruling layer, right? Could you say a little exactly. bit about that? Exactly, exactly. I think, I think that's uh, probably, you know, common throughout history. You know, there, there are political conflicts at the top. You know, it's, it's one group of elite against another sometimes over genuine political ideological questions, right? But there's also a popular uh, critique, very popular critique uh, from, you know, at the grassroots level, at the bottom, from the bottom that reject both. Um, so uh, there were, uh, I think the most famous was uh, Shen Wulian, uh, which is a small group of, of workers and, and, you know, if you will, intellectuals who offer radical critique of, of Chinese society, Chinese socialism, more broadly, uh, but there are others. Uh, there, there are not as you know. But, but I, I think I think uh, what you know what was uh, you know what was clear for a lot of people. Uh, you know, even if they didn't express that in uh, in words, or they didn't express you know they didn't leave any books uh, behind. I think there was a genuine sense that people just. Did not believe things were going in the right direction because of the privileges of the new new class, and again, like by today's standards in China, the kind of uh, inequality and corruption is minuscule. But uh, as I said, I think you know on the back of you know decades of uh, social revolt and and popular movement, there was in in, in Chinese society at the bottom level at the grass level uh, a, a yearning and aspiration for. Uh, equality and fairness and justice. So, so when they saw that that the the new rulers are were deviating from this, uh, you know, they, they rose up and, and tried to articulate a different vi- version, uh, a, a different vision of society. But obviously, they were crushed ruthlessly, you know, uh, jointly by 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 the elite, uh, by both groups, by both wings. Okay, then. So that is put down essentially. And then you have a process that leads by the end of the 1970s to some very important changes in state policy. Can you just tell us again the, the story of what how the Cultural Revolution ended and then the, the transition, the, the new direction at the end of the 70s? Absolutely. So, so the Cultural Revolution, um, the, the most important phase is really just three years, 1966 to 1969. Um, you know, as we are talking before, uh, lot of students and workers and, and others uh, heeded Mao's call to rebel. Uh, 
and and different factions develop and and the the, the conflict become quite militant, uh, and that's when even Mao was you know began to recognize this is getting out of hand. So Mao joined others, the other wing, basically to and agreed on essentially a military crackdown on on almost all factions, uh, on most factions. So the actually so so if you think of the Cultural Revolution, the most violent phase was not between the different factions within the within the public or within the population. It was actually by the state against the other factions toward the end of the Cultural Revolution uh, in uh, 68, 69. Um, so fast forward, you know, this was clear that, you know, after the, the most radical phase of trans- uh, Cultural Revolution um, in 1969, I think there was a sense that, well, what's now, you know, clearly the attempt to uh, uh, to you know, for Mao to uh, chart a, a different kind of vision, uh, uh, you know, ended in disaster. Um, so what's now? And then you know, in, there was already some loosening in the 1970s, for example, the the uh, the um, diplomatic contact with the United States, for example, the rapprochement with uh, with Nixon uh, in 1970 to 1973. That was already, you know, there's a change of attitude, and the Mao was also ailing, and you know, his health was was failing, and I think he kind of began to see the political project he was championing is not going to uh, to to be sustainable, and and that's when things were already moving in in, in the other direction towards toward the the other way. Uh, having said that, I mean, it was still you know it was the so called downfall. Um, was still the the sort of radical wing of the the um the constant party was still trying to carry on the 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 cultural revolution but clearly that i think the population the chinese population was was unhappy with 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 you know what's happening um so when Ma- mao uh died in 1976 there was uh, and and then Deng, Deng Xiaoping quickly seized power uh, there was a lot of public support actually for a change of direction. Um, I want to emphasize that no, you know, very few people in China at the time think, oh, the new direction should be capitalism or should be a full-blown, you know, modern uh, industrial capitalism. But then after that, there was a sense that, oh, things should, should be changed. You know, it should be more, there should be more freedom, more dem- you know, democracy, uh, people's livelihoods should improve more, uh, should improve faster. Um, so in 1976, starting from 1978, actually, um, you know, the, the Chinese state started to introduce policies throughout the 1980s, right? For, for instance, in the countryside, it began to lease land to, to, to the peasants, to the families to farm under the so-called uh, family uh, responsibility system. Um, so basically, it declassified the, the, the uh, rural China. And in the cities, it also began to uh, introduce more price uh, price mechanisms, and uh, began to allow a small private sector to emerge. Again, it was very small in the nineteen eighties, but but the direction generally was kind of a beginning of a macro reform, uh, and then uh, and there was also movement toward uh, thinking of attracting uh, foreign direct direct, uh, direct investment. These changes are beginning to happen through the nineteen eighties, and then in nineteen eighty nine we have the so-called Tiananmen Square uprising, which is, of course, part of something much broader than just one place in one city. But um, could you say something about that? Because, again, some listeners may have heard about 
those events, or at least some elements of them. What what actually happened at the end of the eighties? Yeah. So so yeah, taking up the story from from you know the the nineteen eighties, uh, there there was a period in the early early nineteen eighties uh, when when people were were, were uh, generally happy, you know, because you know the the uh, the uh, um, the the more sort of uh, chaotic period ended, and and people were able to enjoy a period of of stability, and uh, and, and Deng Xiaoping did did enjoy uh, quite substantial popular support in the nineteen eighties because he was seen or he portrayed himself as champion of of the people, right? The the you know uh, less control, more freedom, more more reforms. So he he enjoyed quite a bit of substantial uh, popular support, but that began to change in the in the mid nineteen eighties onwards for multiple reasons. Uh, for one thing, um, the economy after a, a, a kind of an upsurge began to slow down. Uh, the economic growth began to slow down in the second half of nineteen eighties. Inflation began to 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 um, to surge, and and people felt that their their livelihood are stagnating again. There's also a political dimension, which is that uh, for a lot of young people, students and intellectuals and, and others who are uh, really who really believe that Deng Xiaoping is going to um, to uh, liberalize politically to introduce more democracy, and they were thoroughly disappointed when you know it was made very clear by the nineteen eighties that 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 uh, Deng Xiaoping was not interested in introducing political democracy. Uh, so. So prior to 1989, you know, in mid, the, actually the first wave of student reward already took place in the mid 1980s, 1985, 1986. So by 1989, all those things are like boiling over essentially. So you have students occupying Tiananmen Square, but you also have you also have huge number of uh, upper population workers uh, from all you know across the sector, not just in the private economy, but a lot of state state workers are all joining the 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 demonstration again. It's also not just in Beijing. It's it's in um, in dozens and dozens of cities across China. The only one that we remember now is 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 Beijing. And there's also a book that came out a few years ago that focused on Chengdu. But uh, uh, but it's all over. It's in Shanghai. It's, it's in in many many different cities. Um, um, but it was the accumulation of that you know that that many years of of discontent with with the direction that that Deng Xiaoping is is bringing China into. And then, of course, it's brutally crushed by the rulers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's uh, you know I, I think it was uh, clearly recognized by by the by the government uh, that that the revolt is very very popular. It, it wasn't just a few students; it was vastly a uh, uh, number of people across, as I said, across the country. And I think that began to be really threatening to the regime. There, of course, is also internal political struggle within the party that uh, essentially, uh, and in the end, the, uh, Deng Xiaoping and the more conservative wing uh, went out and and uh, um, and began to crack down on, on the students. Um, and But again, uh, just to emphasize, you know, obviously we don't know the exact death toll, uh, how many people died in the crackdown in Beijing. But um, but by by most account the the people the, the most most of the casualties are not students are but they were workers and ordinary uh, urban citizens not on the square but on the uh, on the like the main uh, uh, streets in Beijing uh, who are actually attempting to block tanks from coming to into the square um, to protect the students. 
I might just add, because um, people may not know this who are listening, that there were some efforts to organize independent unions, right, as part of that process, um, independent from the official state-controlled union organizations. That's, that, that's correct. Uh, if I may just quickly say something about, about uh, unions and, and role of workers. Um, so uh, China had always just had one, you know, since 1949, one union federation, the old China Federation of Trade Unions. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, 60s uh, oh, at least in the 1950s, it was still kind of relevant because, you know, if you think about, about you know, institutions like this, even though they're state-controlled, prior to 1949, they still had to play a, a functional role. Otherwise, they're, they're, they're just going to be, you know, become useless. So they were actually had a role in, in organizing workers, uh, even though the... Um, the, the Chinese Revolution of 1949 was primarily peasant-based and rural-based. It wasn't city-based. Nevertheless, the, the, the old China Federation of Trade Unions uh, prior to 1949 and, and in the decade after 1949 still believe that they are relevant, believe their goal is to support workers. And, and, and a political struggle ensued in, in the 50s and 60s. Essentially, you know, it's between uh, some ASFTU leaders uh, like Lili San, and 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 the others in the party. So Li Sen still believe that the, the union still should take the role to take the side of workers, not just to be a functionary of the uh, uh, of, of the party state. But others believe otherwise. Fast forward uh, by the nineteen eighties, the the union was actually already abolished for a number of years. And when it came back, it was really really weak. It already just essentially extension of the party bureaucracy. So there was really no independent workers, uh, like unions or independent workers organizations uh, um, at the time. So there was an effort, as you alluded to, on the square by uh, organized by uh, uh, some, some, some workers trying to set up an uh, autonomous trade union uh, federation. And it was, I think, was gaining momentum, you know, as, as we were saying earlier, because 1989, um, Movement. It, it was it was more than student. It was a lot of workers. Um, so so definitely there is a, uh, a, a, a like a base to build a, a independent union movement. But for many reasons that we can talk about, you know, it was just a sh- too short a period of time before the the crackdown. Was it because you know the the the? It's one thing to 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 organize a a, a union federation, you know, on the square on the back of a movement. It's another to really. Or to deepen the work, you know, organizing at the workplace level, really to entrench yourself and build workers' power from the grounds up. For whatever reasons, that was that was crushed. Uh, but but that was uh, still a very important effort on the part of, of of some people. And of course, one of the the uh, the leaders of, of that effort uh, are still around today, Han Dongfang, who was jailed after uh, 1989, who fled and 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 uh, went into hiding. But was jailed and, and exiled uh, to uh, to Hong Kong. Actually, he's he's still uh, working in Hong Kong. He's uh, head of the uh, a group called China Labor Bulletin, who has still been you know was set up in nineteen ninety four and still been focused uh, uh, focused on supporting workers' movement in in mainland China. So I have a huge question now, um, which is if you could just in broad terms discuss how China has changed since. The crushing of that revolt, right? Since the early 1990s, um, if you were going to identify the key changes in Chinese society that have made, you know, s- obviously such enormous uh, transformations. 
Right. So so maybe let well, me do this by identify a few key moments or key events. Uh, because as you say, like the history is, is very long and, and, and complex. But one one key event is uh 1992. Um so after the crashing, uh, the 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 crashing of the 1989 movement, um there were sanctions, uh Western sanctions on China, there were uh breakouts, there were also uh just general demoralization of society. So what happened in 1992 is was Deng Xiaoping tried to reaffirm uh China's uh, capitalist market reforms by going on this called Southern Tour. So he essentially toured Shenzhen and and, and uh which at the time was set up um some years ago as a special economic zone. And again that's you know you see that everywhere now uh essentially it was a, a pocket of of Chinese territory where it's run capitalistically very thoroughly. So the labor protections was not there. Uh, uh, it was very welcome to foreign investment. Uh, it, it turned, uh, you know, a, a blind eye to labor violation, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, but the goal was really to kick, to deepen China's uh, capitalist uh, market reforms. So that's a key date. Another key date uh, is, I would say, uh, Probably 1997. That's when uh, the Chinese government really started in earnest to break break apart the state sector. Right, still thinking China was a centralized planned economy all throughout the Maoist, oh, for most of the Maoist period. Even though uh, China already beginning market reform in the 80s, the state sector was pretty much still intact um, for many many reasons. You know, uh, for ideological reason, but it was also very politically risky to touch the state sector, which it was very powerful. So, so nineteen ninety seven was a day where uh, this privatization and also restructuring. So, he privatized a lot of state um, uh, state factories that don't you know didn't um, didn't couldn't make profit or couldn't adjust to the market economy, and it, it's uh, also laid off anywhere between thirty to forty million state sector workers. Um, and obviously, that has huge social consequences, hugely devastating to the people and, and communities. A third date is 2003. That's when China uh, joined the World Trade Organization. It's very symbolically significant because that's when, if you look at Chinese economic growth, it's 2003 is a key date, key year when the Chinese economy really, really took off. Um, that's when huge number of uh, rural migrant workers began to pour into to 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 cities and and and, and start working in factories again the, the migrant labor um, rural to migrant uh, migration for for work for factory work already starting in the 80s and all through 90s but again but the 90 uh, 2003 was really the the, the milestone in terms of uh, of um, uh, you know trying trying to really going full capitalist and and run a, a huge export, export, uh, export oriented uh, uh, economy, um, and then the, the economy just started to take off. Another two dates before I wrap up is uh, 2007-2008. 2007-2008, even China was not at the epic center of the global financial crisis. It was hugely affected for the simple reason that China was depending on. On export and the, the the export market just went down, you know, in the U.S. and North America, North America in Europe and elsewhere. So uh, it was a crisis. Uh, you know, China was actually the year before 2007. 
uh, China was actually growing, uh, uh, its GDP was growing at 14%. Uh, and then the next year, it was, I think it was a seven uh, or seven or eight. I, 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 I can't remember the exact number, but there, there, there was, uh, so there was a huge panic on the part of the Chinese leadership about the economic growth, right? Because much of its, their legitimacy was built on delivering continuous economic growth. And I was in crisis in 2007, 2008. So that's, that's followed by this huge uh, uh, financial uh, uh, stimulus package that injected a lot of uh, 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 lending and money into, into the economy, into infrastructure building, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, it was able to save the economy to some degree. So the economy was still growing at 8%, then 7%, 6%. It was still okay. It wasn't as spectacular as as the decade before, but it was nevertheless. Uh, there was already slowed down um, um, uh, before. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so there was already slowed down before the current moment. And then, obviously, finally, um, I think we're seeing with the pandemic, it, it's another uh, quite significant um, challenge. Although we still, you know, it won't. We won't know the result of this uh, maybe in, in a couple of years' time, but. But 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 this time around, um, actually, the Communist Party and or the party state actually proved itself to be capable of handling uh, the the pandemic. Or put it another way, it's probably more, you know, European uh, and and uh, and the United States really mishandled. So it's actually paradoxically uh, put uh, the Chinese state in a really better light. Um, uh, but just to 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 wrap up. Uh, it, it was it was you know from 1990s it was really a, a two three decades now of of continuous high rate of economic development uh, and it totally changes society uh, turns the people to change the mentality and huge amount of inequality right one of the most unequal societies uh, around the world uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, like discontent about about how things are going um, but Finally, uh, very encouragingly, there are also social movements that emerged in this in the last twenty years. That includes the workers' movement, right? There was uh, within a 15, 20 year period, there was huge amount of labor strikes uh, and protests. There was an, also a new feminist movement that emerged in the last few years, uh, and of course, there are other LGBT, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's an encouraging sign. It's the young people and, and workers and uh, women and, and and many many others began to organize in very, very difficult and hostile and restrictive authoritarian context, but nevertheless, uh, they are organizing and that's what's encouraging. So now, um, you know, many socialists um, in, in North America, for example, um, are quite clear that China is a capitalist society and that they would see themselves in solidarity with those movements, those organizing efforts inside China. But you do still find some people on the left who say that China is socialist. Could you just briefly address that debate about how would you characterize Chinese society today? Right. So um, it's it's kind of fascinating, uh, you know, for me to see this revived debate on, on the nature of Chinese society, um, because much of that debate was going on, you know, throughout the Maoist period and then in the early reform period, left groups internationally were debating the nature of Chinese society. But by 1990s, it was pretty clear, pretty clear to most people, well, China has gone capitalist, regardless of what they thought of the Maoist period. That's kind of a separate question. Uh, but 
then in the last few years, you really see this revived. I don't know how to characterize discussion. It's not much a debate, but you know, revived uh, disagreement on on, this, on the question of is China capitalist or is it China or some other uh, uh, other kind of society. Um, I think in general there are two two um, uh, two strands or two stream in in this in this you know uh, in in this re- revival researched uh, uh, interest in this question. I think one is people who look at China and look at look at the state sector and and and, and many other things too. But look at the state sector, for example, and the role of the Chinese state is intervention in the economy and say, well, China is not completely capitalist because. The uh, the Chinese state and the state sector is, is such a big part of the economy. Uh, it, it's true, also, you know, it's true that the largest, uh, most of the largest companies are actually state owned. There are some big ch- private companies, Huawei, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but the large companies are state state owning the banking sector, in communication, in finance, uh, in um, in energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you, you do see, uh, you know, the continuing the continued relevance of the Chinese state. But then some people would, would jump from that to say, oh, because of, of this, you know, China is not capitalist, but somehow socialist. Uh, you, they, may, they may use socialist, they may say something else, but it's, 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 it's a non-capitalist uh, society. Uh, I think there's also other who are, I guess they're confused or um, I don't know for you know, lack of a better word. Uh, I think partly out of, you know, emerge out of the, the U.S.-China rivalry, right? Uh, you know, for especially for leftists in, in the U.S., uh, there's small uh, number of people who look at the U.S.-China rivalry, and, and you know, because their, their politics is anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist. So obviously, they 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 um, their primary uh, enemy is the U.S. state, and then they began to look at China's, you know, you know, you know, more rosy light or, or softly. So. So, so instead of arguing, oh, China is 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 not capitalist; it's socialist. They don't go as far, but they 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 would they would they would say, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe it is. Let's have a debate. But I, I actually, that adds very little to to the debate because it's there's really not much argument. Uh, it's just that oh, we're not sure. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Um, and 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 yeah. So so that that's where we are, which is. You know, very curious to a lot of us who have been uh, interested in China from the left for for many many years. It's it's kind of a curious phenomenon. Hmm. So just to to close, I have one last question for you, which is for people who understand what capitalism is doing to our world, you know, in so many terrible ways. What's at stake for us in how we understand China, both in the past under Mao, for example, and China today? Yeah. It's, so this, this is really important question because you know we've been talking for for quite a while you know on the history uh, on what happened but what is the relevance to us today right both for people inside china but also for leftists and progressives internationally um i would say the following things i think that the history itself is fascinating obviously um you know it's, it's a more than a century and a half of of revolutions of uprisings so the history itself is 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 quite fascinating but it also offers a lot of interesting lessons good and bad right so so Mao year for example still being revisited all the time by 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 people who are who are interested in china because because it does offer an example where uh many people wanted to build a new society 
they were trying different things. Uh, um, a lot of mistakes and, and, and disasters were made. But how do we understand that? Uh, and that's still a lot of debate. And, and, and it's unlikely, I don't think there's going to be any definitive answer anytime soon because you know, people read, people try to understand the Cultural Revolution in today's light. What does it offer to you? So it has a lot of stakes for, for example, you know, leftists in China, right? So like, like we we're discussing earlier, if the, the Maoist period, if the, the, you know, from 1949, 1976, there were a lot of positive things, then should we learn from it? Should we learn from the policies, the, the, the approaches, the, the politics, or do we reject that? Uh, how do we build a new, new society? And so that, that's very a living question for, for leftists and, and, and progressives in China. But for, for others, you know, in the US, in, in Canada and, and Europe and elsewhere, this question is also important because by now it's impossible to understand global capitalism without understanding China. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, by now it's such an important part of global capitalism. Uh, so having a keen sense of the, the, the history, the, you know, it's political economy, having, you know, a class analysis, have a, have a, you know, uh, a clear eyed, you know, um, and a very, yeah, very clear eyed, uh, uh, understanding and analysis of China is really key to understand global capitalism. And obviously that then informed, uh, strategies on the left internationally. So, so, so I think for all those reasons that, um, it is important to take, take China, uh, and, and, you know, Chinese capitalism seriously, again, not, not as something that is, you know, kind of interesting, kind of what you re- you're reading the news that is, you know, far away, uh, place of the you know, corner of the world, but actually it, it affects us in, you know, no matter where you live in Canada, in the U S the politics and the, the interlinkages of economy, uh, are, 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 are all, uh, very like directly and, uh, relevant. And, um, and so I think for the left to, uh, to talk about China and to see how that, uh, can inform, uh, uh our discussions and debate. I, I think that that's really important, uh, an urgent task. Kevin, I want to thank you for providing listeners with such a clear and concise overview of a huge and complex topic. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. The events which led to the emergence of what we can call the Stalinist social order in the USSR at the end of the 1920s as a result of a modernizing counter-revolution on the by then very cold ashes of the revolution of 1917 were very different from the events which led to a similar way of organizing society taking shape in China after the revolution of 1949 against the pre-capitalist society there and against uh, foreign imperialist influence. Nevertheless, in those countries and in other countries, this way of organizing society arose or was imposed or, or implemented, uh, also, of course, in countries in Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa, and, and Cuba as well, with varying degrees of popular support. These societies were widely seen as socialist, but in reality, they were not socialist. They were not even in transition to socialism. There was a new ruling class based on the central political bureaucracy, which exploited the workers and peasants. To quote the Polish dissident Marxists, 
Jacek Curon and Karol Modzelewski writing in the mid-1960s, the new ruling class extracted a surplus product uh, for purposes that are alien and hostile to those of the working class in order to strengthen and expand its rule over production and society. The widespread belief that these societies were socialists did extraordinary harm to the socialist cause internationally, sowing dangerous misunderstandings which still influence many socialists today. The politics of the rulers of these societies also had extraordinary influence on the left outside their borders. And that's what I'll be looking at in the next episode on Stalinism and the future of socialism. <laughs>